0: wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, it is Peace Sunday, and good morning, Grantham Church, by the way. Glad that you've joined us in worship, and if you're watching via the live stream, it is Peace Sunday, and I am very excited to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Both Jim and Lorraine Amstutz are with us here today, and Jim is going to be speaking in the service, and and then later on, Lorraine will lead us in a workshop-type setting over the Lunch and Learn, so I hope that you'll plan to to attend after the service. Uh, Jim teaches Bible and is an assistant soccer coach at Lancaster Mennonite High School following 25 years of pastoral ministry. He serves as a trustee at Bluffton University in Bluffton, Ohio, and is the chair of the board of the Community Action Partnership in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He earned a Doctor of Ministry degree from Fuller Theological Seminary in missional leadership and is a graduate of Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary and Bluffton University. He's also the author of Threatened with Resurrection. Oh, that's an interesting title, Jim. Threatened with Resurrection, Self-Preservation and Christ's Way of Peace with Herald Press and numerous other articles and chapters on peace building, appreciative inquiry and missional leadership. Jim, as I said, is married to Lorraine uh, and they have three adult children, four grandchildren and attend Blossom Hill Mennonite Church in Lancaster. Would you welcome Jim this morning as he comes to share?
1: Thank you, Pastor David. I should also say that Lorraine has authored or co-authored four books. So not that it's a competition. (laughs) But she is the rock star professor at uh, the class that we teach here at Messiah, which we just finished up on Thursday. So uh, if we can go to the next slide. Um, The texts for today uh, on this Peace Sunday, and thank you for setting aside a Sunday to focus on one of our core values as historic peace churches. We take time for what is important. And this is certainly a passion of mine and I trust it is for you as well. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And Paul in Romans chapter 12 writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In our shared historic Peace Church tradition, we are first known as individuals in the context of community. We are literally carried by here in the sanctuary by our parents and embraced by the entire congregation as a newly arrived guest. Promises are made and kept to raise up our children together so that they are immersed in love and story. And as we grow from nursery to nurture, we become part of the fabric of the congregation. We gather for children's story, attend Sunday school, vacation Bible school, we go to camp with sponsorships from the church, we sing in the youth choir as we just witnessed, and we go on short-term mission trips. Go to the next slide. We trust the community to provide us with what missiologist Leslie Nubigan calls the received knowledge of the faith community, the received knowledge of the faith community. We trust our parents. We trust our Sunday School teachers, our mentors, our pastors to provide us with the framework and the knowledge and the incarnated theology of our faith story and our peacemaking tradition, so that one day we might choose it for ourselves. I challenge my students at Lancaster Mennonite High School to take the faith of their childhood that many of them have received as a gift from their parents, from their congregations, from their mentors, from their grandparents, and to choose it as an adult and to not stop with the high school level of faith. Keep moving, keep growing, keep deepening. Choose it, choose to own it. So when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Being a peacemaker is being a reconciler, a mediator, a justice seeker. And it is to reflect and embody the character of God. So what does that look like? I was invited to think about everyday practical peacemaking, not the grand narrative peacemaking initiatives, but what do we do every day? How can we listen, learn, and love as people of faith when we encounter conflict in our everyday lives? Let me give you an example. 10 years ago when I was lead pastor of Akron Mennonite Church In Akron, PA, I went with our high school youth group for a short-term mission trip to Chicago. The group that I led was teaching vacation Bible school at a homeless shelter in North Chicago. Next slide. The week before, there was no Bible school because no youth group felt brave enough to take that on. It was too intimidating, but we did. At the end of that week, the city director of Center for Student Missions, who we were partnering with, said, your group brought an awareness of the issues, but also a service and peace ethic that was so genuine. And there were similar comments at the end of the week from the parents of the children in that homeless shelter. This was a significant comment It occurred to me that as I saw our high school youth serving others in this most challenging setting, that you can't fake this peaceful spirit, this ethic of love and listening and learning that they brought. It was within them. It was part of their upbringing. It was reflective of the congregational nurture in which they were raised. And that was a defining moment for me as a pastor. They did that. I positioned them to have this experience, but they brought who they were into that space, and it showed. Next slide. So one of the first skills that we develop as peacemakers is to listen, and it is so easy in conflict situations to listen reactively to the other person while we think about what we are going to say next to win the argument. Deep listening is to practice empathy, putting ourselves in the other's shoes. Active listening is one of the first practices that we teach our beloved students at Messiah. I'm not sure if anybody's here, but I'm going to give them a shout-out anyway. We had the most fantastic group of students this last semester every Thursday night for three hours. Can you imagine a night class for three hours? But they showed up every week, and they were engaged, and we were transformed by them as well. The first step in a conflict situation, if you are a skilled practitioner, as Lorraine has been for 30 years, is you listen carefully, reflectively, and deeply to those involved. You meet individually with those who have been harmed, learning about what happened, how they have been affected by this, what they need going forward, what they hope for from any possible dialogue with those responsible, and then it is equally important to listen deeply to those who have caused the harm, to their story about what happened and how to hold them accountable and responsible and perhaps make restitution while humanizing and inviting them into the possibility to in turn listen to those that have been affected by what they have done. And let me stop here and say that not all conflict situations can or should come to a face-to-face dialogue. As well-meaning church people, sometimes we rush to forgiveness. And there is a process and there is discernment that needs to happen before we may or may not get to that point. But listening is where we start as peacemakers. Secondly is learn. Here's a picture of longtime civil rights advocate, Loretta Ross. She talks about her work in addressing hate groups. And as a woman of color, she engages with people who are in the KKK or other hate groups. Her approach is to call them in instead of calling them out. Calling out, she says, is asking for a fight. Name-calling, blaming, shaming is to call out. Calling in invites a conversation. She tells the story of a family dinner where her uncle Frank makes a racist comment about immigrants, immigration and immigrants. So she takes a breath, everybody else is like looking down at their plate of food not knowing what to say in this very awkward moment. And so Loretta calls Uncle Frank in. She said, Uncle Frank, I know you. I love you. I respect you. And I know that you would run into a burning building to save someone's life. And it wouldn't matter if they were a man or a woman, or what color they were, or their immigration status. That's the Uncle Frank that I know and love. So help me understand the comment that you just made. And then she pauses and looks at Uncle Frank. And now Uncle Frank has to make a response because he's been called in to a conversation. She cautions that if we call someone in and we ask them to give up their hatred We need enough capacity and our own inner healing to be there for them when they do. If you'd go to the next slide. She was mentored by Reverend C.T. Vivian. And he says, when you ask people to give up hate, then you need to be there for them when they do. And that takes preparation. That takes self-awareness. That takes the capacity to listen deeply and to learn. A second option she uses is calling on. So let's say you hear something at a ball game or in a store or around a group of friends at a party, and what you hear makes you cringe. Calling on, Loretta Ross says, is simply asking, excuse me? and then you wait for an explanation. The point is to disrupt the complicit silence when we typically freeze in these situations. Again, the goal is to engage in a conversation instead of a fight, or by giving tacit assent to something that we know is wrong when we hear it, but we're afraid to say anything. But silence is complicity. So calling in instead of calling out, calling on and waiting for an explanation. The Apostle Paul says in verse 17 of Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. In other words, do not use the currency of evil. Do not stoop to the lowest common denominator. When others go low, we go high. Theologian Paul Ochtemeier says, Christians are under the same obligation to shape their conduct by the structuring power of grace in the secular world as they are to shape their conduct by that structuring power in the Christian community. In other words, stay true to who you are, whether in church or out in the world. Be who you are. Part of the challenge for me when I was on staff at Bluffton University, I was campus minister and I was head men's soccer coach. And I remember the first practice having a moment of truth to say, wait a minute, am I Pastor Jim or am I coach? And the answer was yes. So I had to challenge myself to be as consistent on the soccer pitch as I was in the pulpit. And I've tried to stay true to that even as I coach the goalkeepers now at Lancaster Mennonite High School. Be who you are, wherever you are. As people of faith, we are saved in community so that we can serve in the local community. Let me say that again. We are saved in community so that we can serve in the local community in which we live. As people of faith, we are by definition sent from across the street to around the world. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Beyond the Great Commission, there are a whole lot of other sending texts if we are looking for them. This is another way, being sent, to reflect the character of God. We are in the world, but not of the world, yes? But a lot of times we get that backwards. Too often we are of the world, but not of the world in it. We are of the world but not in it. And let's remember that the community in which the early Christians that Paul is addressing in this book of Romans is addressed to Christians living in the capital of the empire. When you confess Jesus is Lord in the first century, it is by definition a political statement because Caesar thought he was Lord. Are you with me on this? Jesus is Lord is a political statement. Rome is the source of so much persecution, the heavy-handed Roman legions, the false emperor worship of Caesar, the power imbalance is acute. The Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, again, means that not Caesar's kingdom, not Caesar's will, but God's. If we go to the next slide, Jeremiah is a powerful text. This Old Testament precedent for loving the community where you are even in hostile territory. The walls of Jerusalem were breached. The Babylonians killed a lot of people. They took many captive. They're in the refugee camp. The captors taunt the Israelites by saying, hey, we heard you all are good singers. Sing us a song of Zion. And you know what they said in response? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They were rendered mute. They did not know who they were as people of faith outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, temple, we're good. Out here in the wilderness in this refugee camp, captured, we don't even know how to sing. They had to relearn their own story. And then the word of the Lord from Jeremiah comes to them because they thought they were going to be returned really soon. And he says, you're going to have to settle in And then these words, but seek the welfare of the city where you are, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And guess what that Hebrew word is for welfare? Shalom. Seek the shalom of the city where you are, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. We're talking about Babylon, who just captured us, killed our loved ones, and forced us to live in this refugee camp. Are you kidding? That was the word of the Lord. So Jesus draws on that deep tradition from the prophetic tradition of Jeremiah to say, this is how we love our enemies. You don't have to like them, but you have to love them. Hmm. You see, every person raised in the Jewish tradition was taught early on to always pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. So when Jeremiah shared this word of the Lord, they had to really think that one through. What does that mean for us? That our welfare is tied to the very people who captured us. So when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors, he wasn't joking. And this isn't just for inside the church. It's not just for the heavenly kingdom. It's here and now. Not easy. There's also that phrase in this passage in Romans, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. There's also Old Testament precedent in the book of 2 Kings verse 18 to 23 of chapter 6. This radical hospitality, right? There was this invading army of the Syrians, and they kept attacking and attacking, and finally the prophet Elisha intervenes and the invading troops are blinded and they're captured and the king is so excited, he says, prophet, should I kill them? Should I kill them like we got them now? And the prophet Elisha says, no, feed them, feed them. And thankfully the king listened and they were fed and they were shamed and they were humbled and they left. And the end of that story says, and they no longer invaded. Radical hospitality. The third movement of being a peacemaker is love. And the ethics of love as peacemakers begins with a theology of creation instead of a theology of empire. A theology of creation begins in creation and the proclamation that all All human beings are created in the image of God, no exceptions. Dehumanization begins with a mindset that some human beings are less than, that are inferior, less deserving, less worthy. But let's remember that Jesus himself was born on the margins. Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem did not have enough power, prestige or wealth to even find an Airbnb. So where was Jesus born? In a barn, laid in a manger, which is a nice word for feeding trough. Growing up on a farm, I remember spreading out the silage and the corn and looking at the cattle and saying, I would not want to lay a baby here. He grew up in Nazareth, a town so small that scholars say that Joseph likely had to find carpentry work in the neighboring town because there wasn't enough work. You remember what Nathanael said about Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Galilee was this far north Jewish territory, which made them suspect by definition because you're so far from the Jewish temple. So are the Jews up in Galilee keeping kosher? Are they honoring the Sabbath? Are they following all the myriad teachings about staying clean and honorable and godly? And if you look at that list, it's all the things that Jesus violated for the sake of others who were also on the margins in his public ministry. And we know that Jesus had the power of God at his fingertips which he never used to benefit himself. If you look at the Christ hymn in Philippians, it says, though he was in the very form of God, did not think equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and lowered himself to the very bottom, and was crucified as a criminal on the cross. You can't go any lower. And this symbol from a Catholic Cemetery in Belfast when we were on sabbatical in 1998, if you look closely, there is a sword affixed to the cross. I said, here it is. Here it is. And our job is to take that sword off that cross. I I tell my students, when you pick up the cross of Christ, you lay down the sword of the state. Right? It was Constantine and Augustine who tried to bring them together, not Jesus. Do some church history on that. It was Constantine and Augustine, not Jesus, who put those two things together. And here it is, powerful symbol. So the miracles of Jesus in terms of this power was never about himself, nor was it about the magic of the miracles. It was to give others a tangible glimpse of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to give others a tangible glimpse of the kingdom. Remember that story when John the Baptist was in prison and John sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask a very important question. Are you the one who is to come? Meaning, are you really the Messiah or should we expect someone else? What does Jesus say in response? Go tell John what you see and Here, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. So brothers and sisters, how do you identify the Messiah? It's because of this. That's the evidence. That's the proof. Give others a glimpse of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So one of the most important things that we can challenge ourselves to do, and we had to do this at Akron Mennonite, and we have to keep doing it, is to change our middle-class orbits. By that I mean think about your typical day or your week, track where you go, who you interact with, who do you hang out with, who do you go to church with. For a year and a half I was part of a listening ministry team at our church. And we did an an extended dwelling with scripture around the same text for a year and a half, Luke 10, 1 to 12, descending out of the 70, two by two, to the towns and villages where Jesus himself intended to go. Every week as we gathered, we read those verses out loud. We committed ourselves to reading it during the week. At one point, we did some in-depth research to gain clarity about some of the cultural contexts. But the most important lesson about dwelling with that same text Week after week, for a year and a half, was that it became internalized. It became part of how we started seeing the world around us, right there in Akron and Ephrata. After our weekly reading, people would then share stories. I saw Luke 10 come alive this week. People in the group were from all walks of life, and we started to commit ourselves to intentionally change our middle class orbits. Here's an example, a professional accountant started tutoring younger students at Akron Elementary School who needed some help in math. And he told a story of a little girl who recently lost her mother to cancer who came to school and had to have her teacher braid her hair because daddy didn't know how. He was there to tutor math, but he began to hear stories. And telling that story, it brought tears to his eyes. Someone in this group made a connection with a single woman working at a minimum wage job at Wise Markets who was raising her grandson. It was at a ball game of her grandson and a member of this group whose son was at the same elementary school. And Sharon says to Susan, my porch is falling down. It's not safe for us to go in and out of the front door. And all Susan said was maybe my church can help. We ended up helping Sharon fix her porch, always keeping the relationship at the center of this repair project. It took several months. We could have done it in a weekend with our MDS crew. The national director of MDS goes to Akron Mennonite. But fixing it in a weekend wasn't the point. Walking alongside Sharon was the point. She paid for 10% of the project. The rest we took out of our missional challenge fund after we paid off her mortgage. We set aside money for missional engagement where members had to be personally involved. This was one of those. Then we had some fundraisers with some pushback. And that pushback was ironic because just the summer before, we had sent our youth group to Kentucky to work with the SWAP program, sharing with Appalachian people. Guess what they did? They fix people's porches. But that was blessed because it was a missions trip and the poverty was out there, and it was so easy to bless that because of the history of doing missions out there when poverty is in Appalachia. Somebody actually said to me, Pastor, why would we fix some random woman's porch in Ephrata? You see the the contradiction. When poverty is out there in Kentucky, we go and fix it with our short-term mission, good intentions, but when it's three miles down the road, it's a lot messier. But we found a way, and there's the before and after, and Sharon on the porch. And because we kept the relationship at the center of this work, Months after the project was finished, I get a call from Lancaster General Hospital. The staff person said, there's a patient here. She's not a member of your church, but you know her. She's the porch lady. I said, I'm on my way. I spent two hours with Sharon, who had a terminal cancer diagnosis. At the end, I said, Sharon, what do you need? She said she would go on home hospice care with her sisters But her two daughters won't have a clue when it comes to the funeral. And all I said was, maybe my church can help. So we hosted the first of what became several community funerals. Interesting term, a community funeral, not a member. Why would we do this? Because we know her. And we had to learn how to extend hospitality on our porch And because of that challenge, I said, I know Sharon's family, and I know that people will come who smoke. We don't smoke inside the church, obviously, but I said, we need ashtrays outside on the porch. Well, who's going to clean that up? Said the administrator, and I said, I will. But that's part of the hospitality that we need to do. And we made it work, and we hosted that funeral, and it was profound. And I don't think it would have happened had we just gone and fixed the porch. Are you with me on this? It was about the relationship. One final story. When our church took on serving community meals, and by that I mean serving meals in the community at another church for anybody who wanted to come. It was on a weeknight in Ephrata, and I made the observation that as Mennonites, you know, we know how to set up and make really good food and serve that food, we can do that in our sleep. Clean up, not a problem. What we weren't doing was interacting with those who came for this free community meal. Nobody sat down at the tables. So I took the lead after I did the opening prayer. I sat down at one of the tables and members of my church were so hesitant, they said, Pastor, what what would I say? I said, you don't have to say anything, just sit down and listen, be yourself. And here's what happened one evening with someone at the table that I joined. Her name was Eileen. She was a grandmother, and as we were talking, she said, well, I need to go to Staples tomorrow to print out a will that I found online. I said, what? She said, well, my daughter is dying of liver failure. It's terminal, and I'm afraid that the state will come and take my grandchildren if I don't have a will. So I need to get one made up and I found one online and I'm gonna print it out at Staples. I said, "Eileen, excuse me for a minute. So I went, <laughs> I went out to the lobby and I took out my phone and I knew that I had six lawyers in my contact list, right? So I called one of them and I said, here's the deal. And he said, we got this. That next week, They set up an appointment with Eileen to go to the Ephrata Area Social Services, right, within walking distance of her house. She didn't have a car. Jonathan, the attorney, met her there and drew up a proper will so that when her daughter passed, she would have custody of her grandsons. It was a simple thing to do, right? Things that I take for granted. In our passage from Romans today, Paul ends with these words of encouragement and caution. He says, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. And I think it's so easy for us to be immobilized by fear and conflict in our everyday lives. A lot of us are conflict avoiders. And it's so tempting to practice the sin of indifference. The sin of indifference. After the Charleston shooting at the church, the Mother Emmanuel Bethel AME Church, I repented of this sin of indifference. I know that I can opt in or out of this conversation, right? I know that I can opt in or out of this conversation and I had to name it and to own it and to confess and repent from that. Because we say it's not my problem, I'm too busy, I don't have time, I don't want to get involved, it's too messy. You know all the alibis. But when we opt out, when we are indifferent, when we are immobilized, then evil has started to overcome us. And that's the challenge. So final slide, our calling, our mission, our biblical mandate is to be children of God, to reflect the character of God by being peacemakers, not only peace sayers, not only peace prayers, but peacemakers, all of them are important. We need to keep showing up, to keep changing our orbits, to listen, learn, and love the way Jesus did with those that we encounter in everyday life. I pray it be so for us. Amen. God, we thank you for who you are, for your love for us, for the example of Jesus in our lives. We pray that we would have the courage and the hope and the grace and the joy to follow in his steps. I invite us now to hear these words of ascending prayer. Go in love, for love alone endures. Go in peace, for it is the gift of God and go in safety, for we cannot go where God is not. Amen.
2: Good morning. I'm Brantley Gasway, chair of the Peace and Social Justice Commission that sponsors Peace Sunday. Thank you so much for your words, Jim. And uh, as Pastor David said, uh, we very much hope as a commission that you will stay and join us for a lunch and a workshop session that Lorraine is going to put on. It's a great honor to be able to have her with us today to think about building practical skills and ways to communicate as we commit ourselves to be people of peace. Uh, I love the focus that Jim brought about thinking about uh, what it means to pursue peace and the, the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, we are not just the peace commission, we are the peace and social justice commission and you cannot have peace if you do not have justice. You cannot have peace if you do not have justice. And so even as, of course, we work for peace, we want to work for justice, our commission hopes that you'll continue to join us in different activities throughout the year, particularly as we think about making peace in the places where we are, making peace in our communities, in our personal lives, our interpersonal uh, contacts, as well as to support peacemaking efforts around the world in our local communities. Uh, Hopefully you've seen the announcement about our peace offering Sunday. Uh, that's going to be split this year between two different groups, uh, as we did last year. We're going to give um, uh, to the work of Mennonite Central Committee, uh, uh, Mennonite Central Committee, uh, particularly in their work, in their ongoing work in Ukraine. Uh, there continues to be devastation from the war there, the needs of refugees, and so we're grateful to be able to partner with MCC and others that they support in the work of peacemaking and justice building there in Ukraine. And we're also going to be giving um, part of the offering to neighborhood um make sure i get the name right uh Neighborhood Dispute Settlement. <laughs> Thank you so much. Neighborhood Dispute Settlement. Uh, Eric Seibert, one of the many uh, members of our commission, uh, has worked with them in the past. They are a local group that has had a history of conflict resolution uh, and mediation in the Harrisburg area for uh, several decades now, and so we're happy to be able to work with them. They do youth training. Uh, they try to keep people out of conflict and uh, legal disputes, and so we're really excited about being able to support their, their work as well. You know, we're very used TO GIVING MONEY Uh, to missions uh, to support people who are doing missionary work for those of us who are not called to full-time work in missions. And so we hope that even as we work to be peacemaker in our own lives, we'll give generously to the work of those who are engaged in full-time peacemaking efforts for MCC and Neighborhood Dispute Settlement. Uh, You should have received or at least had access to a uh, peace offering envelope. We have those at the back as well. Uh, So in just a minute, uh, we would invite you forward uh, to give and uh, place any peace offering uh, that you have, uh, you're have, you able to give today in the basket up front. Uh, we also have a link online if you want to um, think about this and pray about this, if you're uh, joining us live stream from home or you're not prepared to give today, there is a link on our webpage that you can specifically designate funds uh, to the peace offering and we would invite you uh, to contribute to that as well, or also bring money next week and designate the funds for, peace, um, for the peace offering. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to dwell on what it means to be people of peace. As far as we are able, God, we want to be at peace with everyone. We want to advance your shalom in this world, God. We pray that you would bless these offerings, that you would open our hearts and our desire to give generously to the work of peace, um, internationally, locally, and that, God, that ultimately your kingdom would come, your will would be done through us and through these offerings. It's in the
0: name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.